I've got a couple of announcements to bring everybody's attention to. Don't forget that this Sunday is going to be, no, it's not this Sunday. It's a week from Sunday on March the 8th. We're going to set our clocks ahead. Daylight savings time begins. Also a reminder about the Camperete uh, garage sale, May 1st and 2nd, the teen retreat, March uh, 13th through 15th. You can uh, contact uh, Rick or Amy King about that, and uh, I have contact information up here. Also, for those of you who log in here, the uh, we have a new router, so you have to input the uh, key again. And then the last thing is that this next uh, this next week, a week from Saturday, on March the 7th, Franklin and Maryland, Miriam, what just happened? We just lost the projection. Projector was working. There we go. Um, Franklin and Miriam are getting married a week from Saturday. And so after church this Sunday, we're going to have a little uh, celebration for them. And so you plan on uh, staying after. Um, what else, Alan? That's it? So that'll be... Uh, They'll be immediately following the uh, morning service uh, this coming Sunday. Okay, I think that pretty much covers it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. I will take another drink of water. We will make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord before we study today. And then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. thankful we have this opportunity to come together this evening and just to focus upon you and your word to learn that which you would have us to learn as we go through a background for Samuel, understanding the times, understanding the culture, understanding the people, and understanding the focal points that you're trying to teach through this prophetic literature, beginning in Joshua, extending through Judges and and through the uh, books of Samuel. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to focus our attention for the next hour and that God the Holy Spirit would use this not only to challenge us in terms of our own thinking, but in terms of our own priorities and our own lives and the way in which we make decisions uh, each day. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at Judges, Judges is all about how a nation turns to paganism, how it moves from being a nation that is spiritually focused and obedient to a nation that looks just like all of the other nations and acts like all of the other nations. And this is exactly what has happened uh, in the period of the Judges. As it starts off in Judges chapter 1 with the generation that succeeds uh, succeeds Joshua, and there is a generation that uh, as children they would have witnessed the, the conquest, they heard about the great things of God, witnessed the great things of God. But by the time you get to the latter part of that generation into the next compromise sets in, they have refused to fully carry out 
God's mandate to uh, completely destroy, to kill every man, woman, and child, to kill and, and destroy every, everything related to the Canaanite culture, and they're beginning to look and act uh, like the Canaanites. So uh, by the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, they're worse than the Canaanites, at least as bad as, if not worse. And this is something that is um, uh, the point of this, the whole lesson. And that period continues, as we'll see. We have to understand this background. And in the structure of Judges, we have an introduction, an introduction that covers verse 1 through 3, 6. This sets the background, goes through the uh, basic uh, tribal allotments where they're mopping up uh, the operations that began in Joshua. It's a great parallel for understanding the spiritual life. You can uh, uh, overlay that to the whole concept of spiritual warfare, that when we're saved... We recognize that there are tremendous uh, strongholds and fortifications of human viewpoint thinking in our minds, and the part of the our mission in uh, in in spiritual warfare is to seek and destroy all of that human viewpoint thinking that dominates our thinking. We are to take captive every thought for Jesus Christ, and so it's real easy to take uh, take take the large and the obvious areas of sinful, arrogant, human viewpoint thinking uh, under uh, the authority of Scripture. But there are a lot of areas we just don't want to give up. And this is comparable to what happens during the time of Joshua. Joshua goes in and he takes the major strongholds, uh, Jericho, Ai, mopping up, I mean, a a couple of large military campaigns in the north and then in the south. But that didn't end it. There were still numerous uh, towns and villages and cities, uh, including Jerusalem, that stayed under the control of the Canaanites in the land. And so it's, it was up to the second generation to continue that holy war that God had declared. It's the only time that God declares this in Scripture. This is not a normative thing for Christianity. It was unique for Israel during a distinct period of time that lasted about 40, uh, 40 to 60 years. And when they started that mopping up operation, they began with enthusiasm, had great victory. But then as you go through this this list of each of the different tribes and the problems that they encountered, they fail because of compromise. And you see this especially, look at verse 27 of chapter 1. You get to the tribe of uh, Minasheh or Manasseh, and Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and its villages or Tanakh and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in the land. And that's that whole area. If you re- recall, for those of you who have been to Israel, you on all of my trips we go to Bethshan, and this wouldn't be the... the uh, uh, Greco-Roman city of Bethshan, where we see all the wonderful ruins, but that tell that's in the background, that would have been the ancient Canaanite city of Bethshan, and that area ju- is just uh, to the south uh, east of, of, of uh, uh, Gilboa, Mount Gilboa, where uh, Saul dies, and, and then as you come around that southeastern area of the Valley of Megiddo, also known as the Valley of Herod, because Herod Springs, where Gideon thins out the 300, is right there as well. And you swing on up through that that ridge that comes down from Mount Carmel to Megiddo. That's the area that this is talking about, and they completely fail to take it because of compromise. And so what happens is they fail to drive out the Canaanites, um, and they just use them. They put them under tribute. And so as a result of this, they uh, it goes on in verse 29, Ephraim didn't drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. Zebulun didn't drive out the inhabitants of, of Kitron. Uh, Asher didn't drive out the inhabitants there. And it, it just goes on. And as a result, these strongholds of paganism stayed within the land, and they began to live and assimilate. And through the coming generations, they just looked just like the uh, 
They just looked just, just like the pagans that were around them. So in this section, we see that God's command to annihilate the Canaanites is disobeyed, which leads or sets up Israel for com- complete failure. And then in chapter 2, God interprets Israel's failures so that they understand that the real cause was their unfaithfulness. And if you look down to uh, chapter 2, verse 11, we read, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. So they are now worshiping the fertility gods of the Canaanites within just a couple of generations of being brought out of Egypt and seeing all of the miraculous victory that God gave them in Egypt and then the miraculous victory that God gave them in the conquest over over uh, Jericho and uh, many of the other areas. And the result is that they, at the end of verse 12, they provoked the Lord to anger and they serve the Baals and the Ashtoreth. And so God uh, then is going to bring judgment upon them. And in verse 14, we read, The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into hand, the hands of their enemies all around. And so this sets up the cycle that is going to take place Uh, in Israel. And this is often what happens in our own lives because we refuse to, to let God the Holy Spirit deal with issues in our own lives and in our own thinking that that then becomes the, the entrenchment of human viewpoint thinking in sin in our own lives. And that becomes the area of defeat in our, in our spiritual life. And part of the reason that God allows us to continue to live in the Christian life is so that we'll learn to grow and mature and be sanctified under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And that a lot of the testing that we have in, in our own life doesn't come from Satan. And to some degree, it doesn't come from even the world outside. It just comes from our own sin nature. And that is the same kind of thing that's pictured here. If you look at chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Now these are the nations which the Lord left. Why? that he might test Israel by them. And so uh, people may wonder, well, why didn't God just remove our sin nature when we got saved? And that is that when we continue with the sin nature, even though it doesn't dominate us, it is a source of testing to see, are we going to be positive and really trust the Lord? And the issue is to take every single thought uh, captive. And so this sets up uh, the pattern that we're going to see. Now, just to orient us, Back to thinking, last time I pointed out that that the world around us, we observe a lot of different things, observable phenomena. We can talk about law. We can think think about events. Uh, we can think about language. And this sets up a look at, uh, and we can talk about politics. This sets up the... Um, uh, the area of observable phenomena, that which we're involved in on a day-to-day basis. And in philosophy, this is often talked about as the uh, phenomena. It's what we see, what we observe around us. Now, if you look at this in a, like a two-story house, upstairs is where we have universals. This is where we get uh, the ideas that give meaning and value and and definition to what's going on downstairs. And for Christianity, what we have upstairs is the Creator God. God created everything as it is, including the social structures that He embedded within the human race, and, and these are articulated in terms of the five divine institutions. The first three, individual responsibility, uh, marriage and family were established before there was any sin on the earth. So they weren't designed to control sin. They were designed to promote happiness and productivity in the human race as they were fulfilling God's mandate. The next two divine institutions, government and uh, individual nations, was established in order to restrain human sinfulness and criminality. So in the upstairs area, we have these absolutes which provide meaning, uh, values, morals, ideas. All of this is um, gives definition to what goes on uh, down down below. So when we talk about politics, 
We talk about law. We talk about language. All of this has to have some sort of universal that gives meaning to it, some absolute that helps structure it. But what happens after Immanuel Kant in the late 19th century is that God is removed. We can't know anything upstairs. It's as if there's this brick wall that's uh, put in place. You can only know things as you perceive them. You can't know things as they are in themselves with objectivity. So since 1800, basically no intellectual believes uh, on the basis of human viewpoint that you can know truth. You can only know truth as you perceive it. And you've heard people talk about this. Well, that's true for you. That's your perception of truth. And that, that kind of a statement is just a denial that there's such a thing as absolute truth. And so once you destroy that upper story, you're left with with pure relativism. Everybody's just going to live their life on the basis of their own values, their own opinions, their, their and, and facts don't matter because there's nothing that's there that's going to unify or organize the details of life. If you were to take a string of pearls and remove the string, that's the unifying factor, all you're left with is a bunch of pearls that just rattle around, that just, just go everywhere. And, and you have to have something that strings them together to make that a, a, a work of beauty. And it, it, that's what we're talking about when we talk about this, this upper story area. So we covered that last time, covered the background. The area that we're talking about, the time that we're talking about, is uh, 1406, 1399 is the conquest itself, and then you have about 40 years of the mopping up operation, and then you get into this blue-shaded area, approximately 300 years for the period of the judges. And it's a period where there are these various cycles of, of judgment. So as we look at this, especially when we come to the end of the book of Judges, these are the four key people. Jephthah, covered in um, chapter uh, 11, and then Samson, uh, following that in about 13, 14, 15, and then you get Eli and Samuel, and they're in the book of Samuel. Samuel starts at the nadir, at the bottom, with Israel. They are actually, if you go back to look at this previous slide, not that slide, this slide, from this point on, from 1360 B.C. down to and through 1051, that's approximately when Saul becomes king, Israel is just on a negative trajectory. It's not a straight slide. It goes up, a few, has a few positive bumps along the way, but basically they are on a negative slide. And unless there's a, an intervention from God in some way, uh, reflecting his grace, then that's exactly what happens in most cultures. And that's what we're seeing in an, our American culture. We've moved, and there are a lot of parallels. We've moved from a time in the early 1600s when this was a culture that was grounded upon the word of God. And it w doesn't matter whether you were uh, a Calvinist, whether you were a Baptist, whether you were a Puritan in New England or whether you were an Anglican in Virginia, you believed in the authority of the Bible and in, uh, and in applying the institutions that were established in the Bible. And that created the cultural framework of thinking that dominated the, the colonies up to and through the American War for Independence. It had that biblical foundation. But that has been eroding due to both external and internal forces, just like it did in Israel ever since. And we have been on a downward trajectory. There have been a few times when there have been a few positive bumps, but we have been on a slide that has become increasingly pagan. America was indeed a civilization set on a hill 200 years ago. It was a light to the world. In the 19th century, on the hills of, of what Britain was doing, we began to send out missionaries. Britain sent missionaries out throughout the world with its military in the, uh, in the eight, eight, uh, excuse me, in the 1800s. And they went to Africa and they went to India. I've just been reading a, a tremendous biography on C.T. Studd, who was a pioneer missionary who, 
uh, was responsible for opening up most of the heart of Africa uh, to the gospel. Now, his theology is a little weird in places. He's very Keswick, victorious life, and that kind of a thing. But he's he's not a whole lot different from uh, J. Hudson Taylor, who opened up China, uh, from George Mueller, who was a Plymouth Brethren and uh, had an orphanage, very well known for that, in uh, in Bristol, in England. But there was just a whole generation from the 1840s to the 1890s uh, of these incredible individuals who were completely focused and dedicated to carrying out the gospel. C.T. Studd gave up literally today's money, millions of dollars. His family was fairly wealthy. He was considered one of the uh, best cricket players in England at the time, and he came out of uh, of, uh, Cambridge, and he was going to be uh, probably nationally known, go into being a professional athlete. That kind of thing was just beginning at that particular time in uh, in history. And he got saved at that time. His father had gotten saved a couple of years earlier at a Dwight Moody uh, conference in, in England. And his dad led his three sons to the Lord eventually over the next three years. And they were maybe a year or so apart. And they were considered uh, as a, they, they all played uh, on the top uh, cricket team when they were like in high school and at Cambridge. And when C.T. Studd and others became uh, focused on the mission field, they they went on. They they were all athletes, and they were um, they they did crew and various other sports, and they were expected to have these great careers as professional athletes and successful business people and there were seven of them that all made a public commitment to go on the mission field and they were known as the Cambridge Seven and they it's their their enthusiasm to go on the mission field to give everything up to go on the mission field and to serve the Lord uh, became very infectious and they started being invited to these different universities in in England and in Scotland, and as a result of that, there was a huge revival that took place uh, among the college students in England in the uh, 1880s, and uh, most of these men all went on the mission field, some to China, some to India, some to Africa, but it was a huge movement that took place in the late 1800s, and it bled over into the United States in the early 1900s. And this was the height of our uh, spiritual progress, and it's sort of been downhill, uh, downhill ever since as the culture has become more and more relative. And now we get into a situation due to the impact of relativism in the culture that I remember 25 years ago reading an article that was analyzing what was happening among evangelicals that the younger yuppie generation couldn't make it through uh, three years on the mission field, and uh, because they couldn't handle the fact that they couldn't get any, they couldn't go to McDonald's. They couldn't uh, when they would come back after after four years of seminary and four years on the mission field, they'd be about thirty years old, and their uh, colleagues from college were starting to buy their uh, BMWs and their Mercedes and houses, and and they were coming back, and they didn't have. They were driving a you know a three times used car, and their kids were wearing hand me down clothes, and uh, they they just didn't fit into the culture anymore, and they were leaving the mission field by the boatloads because they couldn't focus on the end game, which was evangelism and and saving souls and going into other cultures and bringing these people to the Lord, and so it just eviscerated our entire missionary outreach, and that's what happens. Uh, with relativism. So America in the same way has had ups and downs, but it's been on this negative trajectory. Let me rebuild the uh, slide here. After the period of the judges, then you have the period of the united monarchy with Saul, David, and then Solomon. And it's this shift that takes place really under Saul because Saul is given to the um, Israelites to be what they think they want. God gives them the kind of leadership that they deserve, the kind of leadership that reflects their own spirituality, 
and it leads them to defeat and disaster. And the Philist- by the end of, of 1 Samuel, the Philistines defeat them in this huge battle at Mount Goboa. Saul's dead, Jonathan's dead, his other sons are dead, and Israel is completely under the domination of the uh, of the Philistines. But then God has already provided the solution in David. So we'll come to the end period. We'll look at this slide again when we come back. But this just shows that the, the, these these last key judges all are living at almost the same uh, the same time. Now, as we look at the purpose for the book of Judges, we see that this is given. Um, this is given for the purpose of defining the problem of Israel. The key verses we'll see in a minute is Judges 21:25. In those days, there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Three times this statement is made in Judges that there's no king in Israel. And the point is they've not only, and that shows the book was probably written during the time of Saul because it's pointing out this contrast that in those days there was no king in contrast to now we have a king, but but there's another implication there and that was that they had rejected uh rejected is uh, rejected god as the theocratic king of israel so when we start looking at these books joshua judges first samuel we have to recognize that they're they're considered prophecy now a lot of people think that prophecy is telling the future and that's not the role of the prophet the role of the prophet was to be God's representative in addressing the people and their spiritual failure or their spiritual success. The prophet would reveal scripture. The prophet would also bring condemnation to the leaders because of their spiritual failure. So in the way the Jews organized the uh, the Bible, there were three sections, the Torah, which is instruction, how to live, uh, we translate it law, but the core meaning is instruction. Then the next section is uh, the uh, Nevi'im, the prophets. In the Hebrew Bible, that's divided into the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets are are Joshua, Judges, First, Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then the latter prophets are the ones we normally think of as prophets: Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And, and the twelve. So the purpose of prophecy though is to challenge the people in terms of their uh, spir- spiritual life. And so we see God's involvement in that in First Peter 1, 20 and 21, where Peter tells us, know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. That means that, that this isn't the prophet's opinion of what is going on in history. It is God telling them the meaning of history. Otherwise, you would just have facts. You would just have these these random, um, piece, these random pearls from the necklace rattling around downstairs with no thread to pull them together. What Scripture does is it provides that thread so that the Jews could understand the meaning and significance of their own history what had taken place so that they could learn from it, and then we could learn from that. Second Peter one twenty one tells us that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So this is God's revelation to us about history, that it interprets these events and tells us the meaning of these events so that we can, uh, we can learn from them. Now, in Judges, what we discover from looking at passages like um, chapter, Judges chapter 2 is that they go through this cycle. starts off with disobedience. They, are, they compromise. Rather than annihilating all of the Canaanites, they decide that they, they just can't have victory. They're not going to trust God to give them the victory. And so they end up compromising and letting them live and then they begin to work together. They begin to uh, intermarry, and before long, they're influenced by the ones they were supposed to kill. And so God brings discipline or judgment upon Israel, and this happened through various uh, tribes from the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Midianites, uh, the Ammonites, 
and they would become oppressors. This all fits within the pattern from the uh, cycles of discipline in Leviticus uh, 26. In those five cycles of discipline, uh, in the second, third, and fourth, you get increasing military opposition and domination until finally under the fifth cycle of discipline, they're completely removed from the land. They didn't go that far during this cycle in the judges, but they were disciplined. And they, every time they would discipline, be disciplined, after about 30 or 40 years of experiencing uh, negative economic growth and uh, lack of prosperity and their health would go down, uh, part of the uh, uh, cycles of discipline, uh, women would be barren. There were all kinds of physical, material manifestations of their spiritual depravity. And then they would turn to God and cry out for a deliverer. And then God would provide a deliverer. And this deliverer would come and he would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to deliver the people. Now, it's important to understand that when you look at the role of the Holy Spirit in terms of these deliverers called judges, it wasn't as it is today in terms of providing them with spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. We can't read the New Testament role of the Holy Spirit back into the, back into the Old Testament. I think that's a mistake. These men all had moments of great spiritual heroism and valor. And that's why they're listed in Hebrews 11. But they also have times of incredible spiritual failure. And each one, as we'll see going through the book, has more and more of a failure and is more and more, um, he exhibits more and more of the characteristics of the pagan culture around them than the previous one. So that we begin with Othniel, about whom nothing negative is said, and we end with Samson, about whom nothing positive is said in the book of Judges. In fact, the only time you have anything positive said about Samson is when you get into uh, Hebrews 11. So after they're delivered, it doesn't last very long. Once people get out from under the trial, the difficulty, the adversity, then, well, I don't need to go to church all the time. I don't need uh, need doctrine that much anymore. I'm just going to stay at home, be involved in other things. And next thing you know, they slide into compromise, disobedience, and you just get this, this cycle going again. Here are the verses I mentioned before. Uh, Judges 17.6 and 18.1 both state the same thing. And those are, excuse me, Genesis, Judges 17.6 uh, still states the same thing, that uh, in those days there's no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 18.1, there's no king in Israel. Judges 19.1, uh, there was no, no king in Israel and goes on and, and describes that. So you see this decline that takes place. It's on a negative trajectory. Now, we'll look at this. I want to come back and give a little more specifics on some of these judges. But the first one is Othniel, and he becomes Caleb's son-in-law. And he is a great and valiant warrior who trusts the Lord at the very beginning. Ehud comes along, and he's a, he's a little bit of a shady character. And this is indicated in the text because he's left-handed, and, and there's there's always this sort of negative about somebody who's left-handed. And he uh, he uses some uh, some uh, uh, devices to get into um, uh, Eglon and to kill Eglon, and he's a little less less of a of a clear moral spiritual character than Othniel. And then you come to uh, Deborah. And Deborah is is valiant in herself, but the problem is that she's a woman, and that's not her role. There's by this time there's negatives about the men; they're not rising to a position of leadership. And her general is Barak, and Barak won't step to the plate unless uh, Deborah goes with him. He shows a certain lack of moral courage, and so he says, "Well, I'm not going to go fight the enemy unless you go along with me." And as a result, he's going to become, uh, his discipline for that is that he won't get the glory for the battle of killing uh, Sisera, the commander of the uh, king of Hatsor's army. That's going to go to another woman. So these women are stepping to the plate spiritually, but the men aren't. And that becomes a major uh, 
theme in this section is that in paganism, men quit being biblically masculine. They may become macho, but that's paganism. Men fail to become biblical males and biblically masculine, and women quit, quit being biblically feminine. And they have, and in many cases, because they justify their position, because as the men fail, they step into the vacuum and says, well, somebody's got to lead, so I'm going to do it. And this leads to a breakdown in the uh, gender roles as God def- defined them from creation and eventually causes other kinds of unintended consequences. And you start seeing the women becoming more and more the object uh, of abuse. Gideon is presented as a, 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 uh, as a reluctant hero. He doesn't want to fight. He's presented as hiding out from the enemy and on the threshing floor. Uh, often the way you hear people preach Gideon is that Gideon is trying to make sure he understands God's, God's will and he's going to put out this fleece, uh, from the sheep and give God a little test. And the test is that if, first time he says, well, God, just to make sure that I've got it right, if you really want me to go to battle and, and defeat the Midianites, then in the morning when I get up, I, I want everything around the uh, fleece to be, to be uh, damp from the dew, but the fleece will be dry. So the next morning he got up, the fleece was dry, everything else was wet, and he said, well, you know, that, I can understand how that might happen. So we want to give God a second chance and a second test. So make it a little bit harder in the morning. Just the fleece will be wet and everything else will be dry. And then I'll know that this is God's will. But the problem with that is the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ, had appeared to him. And he knew that immediately he, he uh, sacrificed called the angel of the Lord, Lord. He knew who he was talking to, and the angel of the Lord gave him his specific uh, marching orders that he was going to go to battle against the Midianites and deliver Israel. He wasn't putting out the fleece to make sure he understood God. He understood God. He was putting out the fleece so that he could find an escape hatch so he wouldn't have to do it. He was basically a coward, but God didn't leave him any wiggle room, and he had to go into battle and so that, so that he would learn that the battle was really the Lord's. When he sent out his initial call to the men in the north and the tribes in the north to come out, he had 22,000. And uh, actually, he had 135,000. They said everybody really didn't want to be here, go home, and that left him with 22,000. And then God said, now you're going to take him down from the mountain here from um, uh, Mount Gilboa, and you're going to go down to the spring of Herod. And those that that get down on all fours to drink the water, they're just a little bit too lazy, so you're going to send all those home. Those who just kind of bend over and lap the water up uh, with their hand and they're focused on the mission, we'll keep those and we'll defeat uh, the Midianites um, with, with those men. And that left about 300. And so he's left with 300 to go into, into battle, and God gives him, gives him the victory. And we'll study what happens after that. Then the next major judge is Jephthah, and Jephthah is a son of a prostitute, and he grows up out in the wilds in the Transjordan, and he doesn't have a background for learning a whole lot of truth, and he represents a, a much larger and greater influence of, of, of paganism. And he makes a vow to God that if, even after he knows God's going to give him the victory, he says, whatever comes out of the front door of my house, when I come home to uh, greet me, I'll sacrifice as a burnt offering. Now, remember when we studied about, about the, the, the manger, that a lot of times in the ancient world, people would keep a little place inside the house where an animal would be kept. And so he's, he may be expecting that an animal is going to come out of the house when he comes home. But instead, his daughter came out, and the text says he did to her as he vowed. Well, what did he vow? He vowed that he would offer as a burnt offering. Now, a lot of people have tried to get around that, but you, you can't. If, the, if language means anything, he offered her as a burnt offering. And, and human sacrifices were prevalent among the Canaanites at that particular era. So he's just manifesting uh, paganism. And uh, then we get to Samson, and Samson's a womanizer. He, he violates his Nazarite vow left and right, and so it's just this, this decline. So we see a very negative 
portrayal, uh, event towards a woman with Jephthah. He offers his daughter as a burnt offering. And then with Samson, he is just sexually promiscuous. He's abusive towards his mother. He's abusive towards women. And he just views them as something to uh, satisfy his own pleasure. So this is the decline. Now, it's during that time of Samson that we have the events at the beginning of Samuel. And, And Hannah is a barren woman, which is a sign in Israel of the uh, third and fourth uh, divine um, uh, cycles of, of, of discipline, that she is uh, represents the nation as being spiritually barren and that God is going to miraculously make her womb uh, fruitful. But she's in an abusive relationship because she was barren. Her husband had it, took a second wife, hoping that through her uh, he would have children, which was... Uh, not uh, not exactly kosher. It wasn't a uh, it wasn't prohibited by the Mosaic law, but it wasn't encouraged either. Some people come along and say, "Well, the Old Testament they they uh, affirmed polygamy. God doesn't condemn it." Well, there's not a positive example of I- any of the men who had a second wife always had trouble. It's they're they're taking a second wife is never approved. It's never said it was approved. There are regulations that when it happened, there are regulations in the Mosaic Law to protect the additional wife, but that doesn't mean it validated uh, polygamy. And every example that's given in Scripture is a negative example, and it always brought forth uh, problems. Now, I want to go back to Gideon, because Gideon is an instructive uh, situation because it lays the groundwork for what's going to happen when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 8. So turn with me to Judges 8. Judges 8 records the victory of Gideon over the coalition of the Midianites and the Amalekites. And when it is over with, when it is over with, this is where we, that, that's the positive. Gideon at his spiritual height is when he has victory over the Midianites and the Amalekites. But pride goeth before fall. And you have to really look at the text, otherwise you're going to miss what the writer of Judges is doing here. This is a, a real negative condemnation uh, of Gideon. He says, uh, verse 22, we read, The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, and your grandson also. We're going to set up a Gideon dynasty. We're going, we want you to be king. Rule over us. What happens in 1 Samuel 8? Israel comes to Samuel and says, we don't want you to rule over us anymore. We want to have a king like all of the other nations. Where does that begin? It began all the way back here in Judges chapter 8 with, with Gideon. There was already that movement. They're re- rejecting God. We're going to set up our own our own ruler. So they go to Gideon, rule over us. Your son, your grandson will set up a dynasty because you delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I'll not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you, but the Lord shall rule over you. That's that's his high watermark. Okay, I'm not going to do this. My son's not going to do this. The Lord is the one who's going to rule over you. Then Gideon said to them, I want to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. Uh, for they all had earrings that they had taken from the from the uh, Midianites and Amalekites, uh, because they and also they were Ishmaelites in the group, and, they, and apparently they they wore the men wore earrings. So the answer will we'll give them to you. So they spread it all out. Each man threw his earrings into that, and they took the gold, and it weigh, weighs it out a, a thousand seven hundred shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments, the pendants, the purple rolls, all this booty. And what does Gideon do with it in verse 27? It's sort of like Aaron. Aaron took from the from the plunder that the Israelites had taken from the Egyptians, and he melted it down, and what did he make? He made a golden calf, and he said, this is a God who delivered you from, from Egypt. Well, this sounds very similar to that, but Gideon doesn't make a golden calf. He makes it into an ephod and sets it in his city in Oprah. Now, an ephod was a priestly garment. Uh, 
And so he sets up this ephod, and all Israel played the harlot there. That means that they were spiritually unfaithful to God. They're worshiping another God. They were not to worship any other God besides uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so here they are worshiping um, this ephod. And it became a snare, a stumbling block. It became a trap for Gideon and to his house. That means his dynasty. He gave in to arrogance and he sets up this this uh, spiritual idol for the people to worship. Now, just in case you've you've uh, missed the point, Gideon has a son, and uh, his son is introduced when we get into the uh, get get into the next section, and he's introduced in chapter nine, verse one. Uh, the other name by which Gideon was known is the name of Jerob Baal, which is uh, introduced into uh, into the narrative in the next in the next section, which I'm skipping. We come to chapter nine, verse one. We say, "Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's brothers and spoke with them and with all the family of the house of his mother's father." So his name is Avimelech. The Hebrew word for daddy is what? Anybody reads the New Testament? Hebrew word, Aramaic word, what's the, what's the word for daddy? It's Abba. That B-A at the end is the, is the diminutive. So Av is the name for father. The I is the, uh, indicates the first person singular. Avi is my father. Melech is king. So what does Avi Melech mean? My father is king. So when you look at when Gideon names his son, he turns to the Israelites and says, no, 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 I'm not going to be king. My son's not going to be king. And then he names his son, my father's king. What's happened to Gideon? Gideon has uh, now completely given himself over to, to arrogance. And so there's this whole thing that goes on here with, uh, with uh, Abimelech's uh, family here. Uh, he goes to his mother's brothers, speaks to them, gets all the uh, all the family together, and all the relatives together. And uh, verse three, we read, his mother's brothers spoke all these words concerning him in the hearing of all the men of Shechem. Their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, "He's our brother." So they gave him seventy shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berith. So that's this temple. I'm going to show you a picture of the foundation of it in just a minute. That's this temple that was there in Shechem. Where's Shechem? Why is Shechem important? Shechem was the first place where Abraham stopped and built an altar to to worship God when he walked in, first came into the land. It is a critical uh, critical location for Israel, and so. But now it's gone over to paganism. There's this temple to Baal there, Baal Berith, the Lord of the Covenant, and so that probably reflects some distorted tradition because Abraham worships Yahweh of the covenant. And now this temple's been built there and instead using the uh, the Canaanite word for Lord, which refers to the, the deity in the Canaanite pantheon, Baal. So Baal Berit means the Lord of the covenant. So they have taken that which was God's and which was designed for the worship of Yahweh and converted it to the worship of Baal. And so um, Abimelech is there, and he's got a band of uh, worthless and reckless men. So he's got his, uh, his gang with him, and he goes to his father's house at Oprah and killed all of his brothers, the 70 sons of Jeroboam. So now we learn that Gideon has been busy. He has had multiple wives, which is acting like a pagan king, taking on multiple wives and having all these kids. So he, you know, you got to understand the culture, or you miss the fact that the writer of Judges is telling you that Gideon just went through a spiritual collapse and he has has fallen apart. But Abimelech's even worse because now he comes back and uh, he commits fratricide and he kills all of his brothers. Except, except for one. 
Jotham, the youngest, was left because he hid himself. And all the men of Shechem gathered together, all of Bet-Milo, and they went and, uh, and made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar that was in Shechem. Now, I'm going to show you a couple of things here. So this is the, the background here. I had these verses here. Here's the location. These uh, yellow dots here in the middle are the area of Shechem. Here's Sikar over to the right, and Shechem is this little triangle right here. Up here you have Mount Ebal. Uh, here's the modern city of Nablus, and then here's Mount Gerizim. So we're going to see some pictures related to that. When you're up on Mount Gerizim, you have a great shot looking down in the valley at, um, at Shechem. So here we have, uh, this is Nablus, the modern city of Nablus. Uh, the photo is being taken from Mount Gerizim, and the far mountain over there is Mount Ebal. And this area right here where you see it's kind of a plain, you see some uh, walls there, that is Shechem. That's the archaeological dig. Uh, dig there at Shechem, Sikar, where you had the woman at the well. That's further up the hill. And then further down the hill is where you had the, the Jacob's well. But this is uh, the tell, the archaeological dig at, uh, at, at Shechem. And right here, they discovered in the 20s a, the stone that was this um, base of this pillar that was there at the temple of Baal Barith. And this area here is the Baal Barith temple. And so this was that foundation uh, foundation stone. Now here's an, another picture. I didn't take those previous pictures. This is one I took from uh, Mount Gerizim last year. And you can clearly see this white stone standing up uh, right here. That is, it's smaller than it was when they found it. Because it had been um, uh, it had been uh, chiseled down after they found it, the Arabs came in and chiseled it down to sell it as souvenirs. But it is it was originally this stone was set up by Joshua as a witness to the renewal of the covenant at the end of the book of Joshua when they put the divided the tribes into six and six and six of them went up on Mount Ebal and recited the curses and the other six went up on on Mount Gerizim so uh the temple uh there was a temple here that got converted to paganism and this stone was uh was found here that was set up at the sanctuary of the Lord by Joshua in Joshua 24:26, And so this was at the site where Abimelech was crowned king. Now here we have a just a video looking, looking at the whole site. And here is that uh, standing stone right there. And then this area in the background are the foundation stones of that, of that particular temple. That's the close-up. For those who went to Israel this last summer, we didn't get that close. But I was there the year before. Okay, now that's the background. So they crown Abimelech to be king, and he rules in Shechem for two years before uh, before he is killed. Now when you, we get to 1 Samuel 8, verse 5, the Israelites come to Samuel and say, uh, behold, you've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. That's their problem. They want to be like everybody else. This is the problem that a lot of Christians have, is they, want, they don't want to be set apart from the culture around them. They don't want to be distinct. And in the world in which we're now living, Christians who hold to biblical values are going to stand out more and more. And even, I mean, it's just amazing. 20 years ago, I used to try to keep track of all the latest X-Acts and spasms that were taking place in Christianity, and I'm just not in that uh, arena anymore. And I was talking with uh, my good friend Tommy Ice yesterday, and he has uh, uh, three sons who get out there in the culture, in the youth culture, and the things that he hears from them, the trends that are going on in so-called evangelicalism 
I mean, it's one thing to talk about how bad it is out there, but when you start talking to uh, people who who get out there and go to some of the churches, go to the websites and see what's going on, it's probably a thousand times worse than any of us can imagine. The apostasy in in Christianity is is amazing. You most of these movements that are drawing huge numbers, I'm talking about tens of thousands of young people aren't preaching the gospel, the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. They're preaching the old social gospel. They don't have expositional teaching of the word of God. They focus on, on Jesus only in terms of somebody who fed, uh, you know, fed the poor and healed the sick and all in terms of social action. And social action is always just a code word for socialism and communism, Marxism. And this is what is being taught and what is attracting uh, young people, and so if you're 30 and under, and a, as a as a young Christian, you're not really being taught the Bible anymore. You're just being taught a, a lot of uh, uh, of heresy under the guise of biblical truth, and this is going to lead to the complete collapse of of uh, Christianity in this country. And it's because they want to be like everybody else. They want to follow the basic thinking that dominates the pagan culture. And this is what happened in Israel. They wanted to have a king like all the other nations. But this displeased uh, Samuel when they said this. And then in verse 7, he went to the Lord about it. And the Lord said, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you. Samuel had taken it personally. He said, they have rejected me from being king over them. That gives meaning to that phrase back in Judges that there was no king in Israel. God was supposed to be their king. So in verse 8, God says, Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt even to this day, in that they have done what? Forsaken me and serve other gods. And we've just seen a glimpse of that in our flyover in the book of Judges. So as we come to this point, I want to run through just a few principles related to government that we learn from uh, study of of judges and the issue of kingship and authority. First of all, human uh, human government and the authority of human government is established in the covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 through 7. And its purpose is to restrain sin and evil in a culture and to exercise judicial restraint and for and punishment for criminal activity. That's the role of government. Two things, actually, to uh, restrain criminality within the country and to protect the nation from external enemies. That's its purpose. Some people might add a third category, which is to provide a, 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 uh, a stable uh, monetary instrument. But the primary purpose of government is to restrain criminality within the nation and to protect the nation from external enemies. And when a nation gets away from that, they're not in their realm of responsibility anymore. And so sooner or later what will happen is that government will will collapse. Now in Israel, the initial form of government was a theocracy. It is not a democracy. It is a monarchy. But the monarch was God who was absolutely perfect, but they rejected a perfect God. The only way that Israel is going to have success again is when once again their king is God. He's going to be both God and man. He will be the uh, Lord Jesus Christ who sets up his his kingdom. So they had this uh, theocracy. God's the ruler, and God would raise up specific leaders underneath him that were called Shofetim, Now, we translate that into English as judges, but we think of a judge as a magistrate in a courtroom. These guys functioned more as military deliverers and conquerors than they did as as, uh, someone functioning in a courtroom adjudicating uh, disagreements and criminal activity. Deborah is the only one who functions somewhat in that category. And Judges chapter 5 talks about people coming to her uh, for wisdom and for decisions. So God would raise up these individuals and he would give them special power, special wisdom to defeat the enemies 
of Israel during times of, uh, of oppression. Third thing we see is that under the theocratic government uh, established by God in the Mosaic Law, Israel had been given a freedom code that was unique in the ancient world and unique in history. The Mosaic Law provided for real freedom in the nation and supplied that for the nation. But it's unique. It stands apart from the Code of Hammurabi. It stands apart from what was going on in Egypt. It stands apart from what was going on in Mesopotamia. Fourth thing is that under the Mosaic Law, Israel had the right to possess property. And that's why theft was uh, mentioned in the Ten Commandments. It recognizes uh, the right of private property to enjoy its blessings and to benefit and to profit in business transactions unhindered by an overpowering government. We live in a world today when the government wants to control anything and everything that the people benefit from. The Federal uh, Communications Commission is about to uh, launch a new uh, policy called net neutrality uh, to control more of the Internet, and its basic motive is, is once again to equalize everything. They want to solve a problem uh, when there's not a problem. But it's the government has to control everything and not allow true freedom of competition within any particular environment. A fifth principle that we see is that freedom includes authority and respect for authority. If people don't understand authority and don't respect authority, if they don't have integrity, then what happens to authority? The authority is either destroyed or the authority becomes tyrannical in order to bring order. Those are the only two options. John Adams, to paraphrase John Adams, he said that that the Constitution was made for a moral people. Only a moral people who understand personal responsibility can live in freedom because once you start abusing freedom, then you're going to self-destruct. And to prevent self-destruction, uh, the government is going to take over more and more control in order to uh, step into the gap for those who are being irresponsible. So we learn that freedom without authority is anarchy when you just have all this freedom. But freedom, uh, but authority without freedom is tyranny. That's the direction always goes. We can't have a complete breakdown of civilization. We can't go to anarchy. So what's going to happen? Federal government is going to become more and more dominant and more and more strong. Sixth point, absence of a despotic monarchy in Israel not only meant a high degree of personal freedom, but it stood out as a unique witness for Yahweh in the ancient world. There was no country that had freedom and would have prosperity. That's what God sets up in Deuteronomy, that if the nation follows the law and has freedom, then all the people that came there would see something that was unique in the whole world, and they would want to know how did this happen. And that would be their witness to God for the rest of the world. A seventh point, under the environment of freedom, Israel could achieve spiritual success which would bring them military blessing, I mean, a, a material blessing, military victory, and agricultural bounty as a testimony to the grace and the power of God. People would say, how did this happen? And then they could witness to them. We have something similar in the, in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, everybody came to Israel. They didn't go out. In the New Testament, we're to go out, but what we're supposed to live a life so that people ask us, why are you so hopeful? What's the reason for the hope within you? That's what we'll see when we get into uh, into First Peter. What is the reason for the hope within you? First Peter three fifteen, and then we can witness. So by living a life where we exhibit the blessing of God and the joy and the hope that God has given us, gives us an opportunity to witness. Two more points. Eighth point: failure to follow the divine mandates led to a cultural decline where Israel resembled their pagan neighbors, and there's no discernible difference. So nobody's asking them about God. And sadly, that's true in a lot of Christian lives, is that people don't live any differently than their pagan neighbors. So nobody's asking you what's different about your life, because they don't see anything different about your life. You're just like everybody else. 
gripe and moan about the same things and and uh you know everything else is the same as everybody else so nobody asks you why are you different because you're not that's what happened in israel the last point is only bible doctrine provides a framework to maintain the proper balance between freedom and authority because it builds character and integrity and without character and integrity then there can be no sense of responsibility to handle freedom. And without that, freedom will collapse. And that is exactly what happened under the judges. Now, next time, I, want, I still have a few things I want to say in terms of some uh, uh, introductory matters, understanding kingship in the ancient world and a few other things, but that will lay the groundwork and we'll then get into the first part of First Samuel. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to recognize these principles that are as true today as they were in the ancient world, principles that reveal for us uh, your integrity, uh, principles that reveal for us that unless a nation is walking in the light of your word and in the light of your truth, then they are doomed to failure, to instability, to chaos. And that the only hope, personally or nationally, is to turn to you. Father, we pray that we as individual believers might recognize what Paul says in Philippians, that we are to shine as a light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, so that, as Peter says, we can uh, exhibit a life of happiness and a life of joy and hope, so that people will look at us and see something different, something distinctive, and they will say, I, I want to know what that is. I want to know what the difference is and that we're not just living like everybody else because we don't think like everybody else. And we know that that's not going to make us popular, but for those who know us, it's going to be a light and a beacon to the truth of your word and to the cross of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.